Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome. It's Sunday morning. We're here at Essex Church. It's rainy and cold outside. The shops haven't opened yet, and Arsenal's victory parade isn't happening for another few hours. So where better to be on a Sunday morning than here as part of Kensington Unitarians? I wonder what you've given up in order to be here this morning. Some of us will have given up that lie-in that we might otherwise have enjoyed, or that chance to catch up on household chores, or an early start for a, a wet day out. I wonder if any of these images in David Blanchard's opening words fit your Sunday. Come down off the ladder, he writes. Come down off the ladder, wash out that paintbrush, shake the sand out of your shoes, get up off your muddy knees and give the garden a morning off. Fold up the newspaper, turn off the coffee pot, close up your calendar already filled with dates and times and people and the places that claim you. This church is ready for you to fill its rooms, to create its spirit and to generate its worth and warmth, to kindle its light. This church is ready for you to make community, to create beauty, to bend it towards justice and to serve its ideals. This church is ready for you to be here, honouring our past invigorating our present and dreaming our future. This is our church. Together we create it. Being here together, an act of creation. And as part of our act of creation, I light our chalice flame, connecting us with liberal religious communities the world over. One flame, one humanity, one love. So this reading on committees, it's written by Richard Lovis, and, and sadly, Mike, it doesn't tell us where to sit on a committee, but Richard Lovis was such a lovely Unitarian lay leader, and he loved words, and this is his exploration of that word committee. Are you on a committee, he asks? The likelihood is that you have been at some point, but perhaps my question should have been, are you a committee? Just you, by yourself, on your own. Because the word committee derives from an old English verb, committen, meaning to entrust. And the ee suffix denotes a recipient of the action involved, such as legator and legatee in the context of a will, or a lessor and lessee in the context of property. So a committee, therefore, is someone to whom something has been entrusted. Strictly speaking, then, I suppose we should talk of a committee's meeting. But let's not get too pedantic. After all, the Latin from which the English word derives in the first place means to join or come together. That implies plurality. And there is a deeper meaning to the word commit, however. And that, he writes, is the nub of the matter. 
A committed person is someone who has pledged or aligned themselves to a political, a particular cause or action, who has made a commitment. Putting the two meanings together, therefore, when we join a committee, we are acknowledging the trust of others in our commitment to whatever cause or action it is that we have espoused. And he puts in brackets, that's another interesting word. Come to think of it, doesn't that make every member of a congregation a committee? We all come together regularly to commit ourselves to a high calling as Unitarians and to seek the strength to be able to honour that commitment. Without that commitment, sorry, what that commitment might entail may not be too obvious on a week-by-week basis, but we can be very sure that every now and then the challenge will present itself in very clear terms. When that happens, may it be that we shall recognise it and respond to it as a true Unitarian committee. It's lovely to be on a committee with all of you. And let's take um, Richard's ideas now into our time of prayer and reflection. There is a Hindu proverb, help another's boat across and your own will reach the shore. O God of our lives, voice in our hearts and light in our minds, in the precious freedom of this fellowship, here together as people of faith, called forth to be more loving, more just, more true. Here in this place, made holy by memories, aspirations, purposes, ideals of those who went before us, we can be inspired by their example. These were women and men of vision, people of spirit. We too are people of spirit. We too are touched by the great beauty of the world. We too are powerfully moved by a deep concern for the world around us and our care for one another. May ours be a faith that is more than just beautiful words and high ideals. May ours be a faith of vitality and commitment, a faith that burns in our hearts and blazes in our minds. May we be people who help one another's boats ashore. So let's spend a short time in the togetherness of silence now, each with our own thoughts and prayers. May the thoughts and prayers of our community find expression in actions, however small, and help us both to accept the limitations of our world and to work tirelessly for improvement. Amen.
Take this reading with a pinch of salt. It's another reading from Guy Browning, who wrote the book How to Be Normal, a a Guardian columnist. And he picks some of the issues that are important to people in life. And today it's How to Volunteer. There are, he writes, two types of volunteers. Those with a heart swelling with passion and courage, who step forward knowing that the cause is just. And then there are those who just don't say no fast enough. The number of people actively involved in voluntary activity on any particular weekend is equivalent to the entire Red Army at the height of the Second World War, albeit slightly less destructive. Now, if you're afraid of volunteering, the golden rule is never to attend an AGM. These are annual meetings and are theoretically open to the public. The only way you can tell is that the six members of the group all sit on one side of the desk as if about to face the world's press. Any member of the public who comes through the door is automatically identified as a volunteer and possible future leader of the group. Voluntary bodies are interested in three things, fundraising, recruitment and sexual abandon. The third isn't a stated interest, but it's what most people think about in meetings. (laughs) If it were to be an agenda item, the group might find recruitment and fundraising much easier. Before going to any kind of voluntary meeting, it's important to train yourself not to say, well, if no one else will do it. Uttering this phrase, or anything remotely similar, is seen as evidence of unbridled enthusiasm for the job on offer. You generally volunteer for something because you think you can run it better than the people currently running it. This can make for interesting committee meetings. Managing groups of volunteers can be difficult because of the you're lucky to have me syndrome, where people think they've done their bit just by turning up. Leaving a voluntary organisation is difficult. What you have to do is to give five years' notice that you're intending to stand down, and then, once the five years have passed, agree to another five-year handover period so that a successor can be found. Very, very occasionally, some fresh-faced, unspoilt individual arrives unannounced and is very keen to get involved. For most, this is viewed in the same spirit as the arrival of a new messiah. For a few, though, such keenness has to be immediately put to the test by totally ignoring the new arrival and not asking their name for the next three meetings. Words of advice from Guy Browning. I wonder how many of us have um, seen a film starring Harrison Ford from 1985 called Witness. Oh good, there's a few of us. It's set in a small Amish religious community in the States and it shows their traditional farming lifestyle. There's a gorgeous scene where the whole community works together to build a barn for a newly married couple. Um, I'd, I'd found a clip to show you and I realise I've left my laptop um, upstairs but I'll maybe bring it down for coffee later um, barn raising it's, it's called and it's still carried out in Amish communities to this day I mention it as an example of a community working together to help others and in truth there's nothing unusual about that 
Throughout human history, we have survived and prospered by helping others in our community, knowing, of course, that when we ourselves were in need, we too would be helped. Academic papers are written attempting to define volunteerism and to separate it from the simple helping of one another that's part and parcel of human existence. These problems of definition also make it hard to measure just quite how much volunteering goes on. One recent study asked the question, did you help, work or provide any service or assistance to anyone outside your family or household without receiving compensation in the last few months? And of course, if you ask yourself that question in relation to the last few months, you, you'd probably be surprised just how much volunteering you have been doing. Most of it probably without any formal arrangement or even conscious planning. It's human to notice another's need and to do something to help. Mutual self-help is an essential in pre-industrialised societies, so essential that it doesn't need a name, it's part of life. But once we have industrialisation and urban societies using money as the primary means of exchange, well then we see the rise of volunteering as a concept and as a part of life. And so it was that in the 19th century Britain that new charitable organisations, depending on volunteers to carry out their tasks of improving social conditions, started to emerge. I'd intended not to say a word in this service of a political nature, so if you're tired of hearing me grumble on about the austerity agenda that is dominating our current political landscape, then cover your ears for the next minute or two. But I think it would be wrong to wax too lyrically about how marvellous volunteers are and not point out the danger of a state backing away from its responsibility to society's most disadvantaged members and leaving less regulated and less well-trained charitable organisations to do the work. Yes, there's an important place for charities in modern society, but surely they are not a replacement for a state welfare provision. The two need to work closely alongside each other, and I personally expect my taxes to contribute towards the care of those in need. Governments have a duty of care to all, and for, that, for me, that means the most vulnerable need greater resources than the most capable of independence. Okay, that's enough. You can open your ears again. I'm going to move us again to a more spiritual plane. We're here in church, after all. And so far, we Kensington Unitarians are not joining in any big society projects, though I know of churches running programmes to help prisoners to rebuild their lives, to teach English as a second language, to help families who are struggling. Um, churches are hosting the ever more needed food banks. So maybe this is a conversation for us to be having, asking one another what our role is in 2015's social setting. Because, of course, the religions of the world have long been at the forefront of social care. They all emphasise the importance of service to others and have provided and continue to provide education, medical care, care for the most vulnerable within their communities. The message from all these religions is that by serving others, we are serving the divine. Jesus expresses this so clearly as recorded in Matthew's Gospel. You may know these words. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. 
I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. I think this sums up service quite beautifully because at its core is the teaching that though human existence sometimes feels like a terribly solitary endeavour, it truly is not. We are all one family. When we serve one, we serve all. I'm, I'm very um, taken with the work of Andrew Harvey. I know some of you have read his work. He's a spiritual writer and activist. In his book, The Direct Path, he describes five different but interdependent forms of service, all of which, I quote, need to be pursued and fulfilled together to be fully empowering and effective. These are service to the divine, service to self, service to family and friends, service to community, service to the world, to all sentient beings and to the cosmos in which we live. Harvey reminds us that the ultimate aim of the mystic's path is selfless service as an instrument of the divine. That message of our chant um, earlier, O Signore, fadi me un instrumento della tua pace, St. Francis's prayer, O Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. And this is St. Teresa of Avila's image of us, us as God's hands here on earth. But come down from the mystical heights just for a moment and consider a darker side. Because like every human endeavour, of course, serving others has its shadow side. I wonder if any of these ring bells for you, as some of them certainly do for me. Yes, it's a good thing to help others. And the shadow side of that is when we become convinced we know what's best for others as individuals or at an organisational level and then we cease to listen to the people we're attempting to help because, well, we're convinced we know best. Yes, it's a good thing to help others and the shadow side of that can be that we become so concerned about others that it masks our own needs or we lack the self-reflective ability to notice that in truth we're attempting to meet our own needs through helping others. This way, exhaustion lies if we don't attend to our own needs as well as the needs of others. Yes, it's a good thing to help others, and the shadow side is that being on the receiving end of other people's charitable endeavours can feel dreadfully disempowering and humiliating. Just a few of the shadow aspects of volunteering, a reminder perhaps for us all to remain awake and reflective about what we do, how we do it, why we do it. Oh, but when volunteering is working well, it's a powerful tool both for self-development and for social improvement. A United Nations report from 2011 on the state of the world's volunteerism emphasises how volunteering is a means by which people can take control of their lives 
and make a difference to themselves and those around them. Volunteering can be a, a route towards social inclusion from, for those who might otherwise be excluded from social groupings. And in a church setting such as ours, it's essential for our very existence. This church was created by volunteers. It's run by volunteers and it will be steered towards its future by the decisions that volunteers make. Ministers like me, we come and we go. But volunteers as a body, as a community, as a committee of committed people, they, you, are our past, our present and our future. And for you, I give thanks. Amen. And I invite you to, to join now in um, speaking to one another a litany of thanks for volunteers. It's on this yellow sheet. And I don't mind which line you join in with. You can see yourself as a leader or a congregation here today. Our world is created by all who serve others. And we thank all those who make life better for those around them. We don't always know what other people do. And so we thank all who work quietly and perhaps without recognition. Our own congregation is run by those who volunteer their times and their talents, whose enthusiasm and commitment bring our church to life. We thank one another and we thank ourselves, for each of us brings something to this, our community of faith. Let's honour all who take a step forward, recognising the needs of others. But together, together, create a world where people care. And for this, we give thanks. <laughs> Thank you. And so, as we leave this place of sanctuary and peace, let us choose to take our blessings out into the world. To brighten, if we can, the lives of those around us. As forward through the ages, we bring that timeless message. Each of us is holy. Each of us is blessed. Each of us brings a multitude of blessings for our world. Let us then choose to bless the world with love. Amen. Go well and blessed be.